the work that I'm doing is not making an impact. I don't want to be doing it and I don't want to be involved actually. episode of the mixtape with Scott, I had the pleasure to sit down and interview Noam Angrist. Noam is someone I've been intrigued by for a while. He's a 30-year-old economist by training, his undergraduate work at MIT and a PhD at Oxford. But he's an odd bird to say the least, because while on the one hand, he is well-versed in the experimental design scientific methodologies associated with places like MIT, JPAL, and the World Bank, uh, he uses them not just to study and better understand the causes and consequences of poverty in developing countries, not just to publish in top journals, but but uh, primarily to build policies scaled at large scales that will continue to have the impacts found in these smaller pilot studies. That, it turns out, is not as common as fielding the pilot studies in the first place. Noam is co-founder and executive director of Youth Impact, formerly Young Love, which is a nonprofit organization that takes evidence-based pilot studies that have been rigorously evaluated, the randomized controlled trials, oftentimes articles that have been published in top five economics journals, and then tries to scale them to have maximum impact in developing countries. Some of these have been programs aimed at addressing risky sexual behaviors associated with large age gaps and sexual matching between young girls and older men called sugar daddies and others have been education interventions. What I find interesting about Noam, I guess, is that he knows economics, he knows the field, he knows the science, he knows the cutting edge, methodologically rich scientific work, he contributes to it. And yet he started a nonprofit to actually use those skills and that knowledge and that human capital more broadly to change people's lives. And as we talked more in the interview, I realized the gap in economics that isn't there in some of the other more scientific fields really is there in economics. In some fields, particularly those rewarded immensely by tech, the scientific work and the desire to scale it, often for profitability reasons, go hand in hand. It may even be present in one's graduate training. But economics, uh, is not exactly there yet. Uh, it oftentimes is the case that a young student may in fact have to make a hard choice between a scientific career and a career, uh, a, cre a creative career creating policies um, uh, th that in commerce. Noam is interesting because he's tried to, there's exceptions, but, but Noam is one of those people that has tried to go and make these programs work uh, without bending on being fully committed to whether they do in fact work. Um, he has a very interesting story. Uh, going back, we talk about uh, going back to being a young man with some health problems in high school and how it changed his life and got him into interested in economics. And I uh, just thoroughly enjoyed this time talking together and uh, learning more about his life and where he's going and what he's done. And I, I hope that you find this uh, interesting and, and interesting and useful for thinking about your own life. Um, as always, thank you for tuning in to the Mixtape with Scott. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham.
Okay, well, this is a real pleasure um, to have uh, a chance to talk with a person uh, who I've watched from a distance for a while and spoken to a couple of times, uh, Noam Angrist, uh, co-founder of uh, Youth Impact, formerly Young Love. Um, Noam, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Looking forward to chatting. I my first question is always. Uh, uh, can you tell us your name and any titles of employment? But I literally just said those. But can you say them in your in your own words for the sake of the listener? Uh, your name and anything about you that uh, that 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 would help them. Yeah, absolutely. No, Mangrist. Uh, I am a co-founder and executive director of Youth Impact, which is an NGO that scales up RCT-backed health and education programs. Uh, and then also wear a hat as a researcher, so straddling the worlds of kind of doing some of the research and then also doing some of the work to make sure it gets scaled up. So affiliated with the University of Oxford, and I've also done a couple uh, education projects with the World Bank. Mm, cool. Great. You might ask if it's okay if I ask how, how old you are, just for the sake of people listening? Yeah, of course. 30. 30 strong. 30. Okay, cool. All right, great. Well, before we get into your, uh, you know, a lot of stuff, I just wanted to start off and just tell me sort of, you know, where did you, where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, it's right in the Boston area. Uh, and uh, my dad is a professor at MIT and my mom is a teacher and, and professor at Hebrew University. So right, right in the Boston area, I grew up there uh, mm. for most of my life, actually. Oh, your mom's a professor at Hebrew? Yeah, exactly. She's a, oh. a Hebrew professor. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So, what do y'all y'all go back and forth to go back, or is there something here in the United States for that? Yeah. So BU has a Hebrew or a language department, so she teaches Hebrew there at oh. uh, Boston University. Uh, and uh, that we actually have as a family moved back and forth between Israel and the U.S. over the years. Oh, how long did you? How how much time have you spent uh, in Israel? Uh, about six to seven years. Uh, Total so I, of your life, you've spent about six to seven years there? Yeah. Actually, Hebrew was my first language. Oh. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was born in the U.S. And then actually shortly after, we moved to Israel uh, and then uh, stayed there for, for a while, came back to the U.S. around age five-ish. Yeah. Uh, and then actually, when I was in eighth grade, my mother thought we were losing our roots. So uprooted the family back to Israel for a year. Yeah. Uh, so we would we would reconnect uh, with, with our roots. And we did. And then we moved back to the U.S. You have a lot of family over there. Yeah, we have some family over there. Yeah. My mom's side is she's Israeli originally. Uh, and so all of her family is, is over there. Oh, OK. Um, uh, um you you have close childhood friends that are that are that live in Israel that you still keep up with? I would say some actually. I, I haven't been back in a while. I probably should should get back. Every time I go back, I find it's it's so easy to connect. It's a very friendly and, and welcoming and warm environment. Mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't been back in a couple of years actually. So I, I need to to get back. Mm -hmm. Um so so you sort of split your time, uh, Massachusetts, Israel. And um, so what did you what, what were you like as a little kid? What were you like? Like if I had like sort of kind of could have been a fly on the wall uh, when you were like, you know, fourth grade or something like that. What were you like? Um, how does one capture that? <laughs> I think uh, maybe one thing that comes to mind is, you know, I remember one thing every time we would travel. Uh, and go somewhere, whether it was like hiking in New Hampshire or traveling to a new place, I would always tell my 
family, I want to live here, actually. I'd say, I love this place. I want to live here. And my family would say, you love everywhere. <laughs> and uh, it's it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm just thinking about it now, actually, as you're asking it. But, you know, I have really grown to love to travel and experience different places in the world and, and make them home, actually. So wow. uh, I guess that was always a part of my, my, my uh, inner DNA. Right. Not just visiting places, but making them home. Yeah, exactly. I always really kind of got attached and wanted to to learn more and and integrate. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. That's different. That's different than just say, I've, you know, people love to travel, but this idea of uh, wanting place to be home. What does home mean to you? What does that mean? Yeah. And even I would even actually say um, uh, even now when I travel, I actually don't love just kind of sightseeing. Actually, I like to go when it's in combination with with work. And part of the reason for that is uh, then, you know, I have people that I'm connected to and, and have a mm-hmm. lot in common with, and I can meet their families and their favorite restaurant. And actually, that's my favorite type of, of going to a new place is going with someone and seeing their world, actually, mm. rather, rather than sightseeing. Hmm. Hmm. So you've always been like that? You've always been sort of this kind of like a, like a family, social, communal type of person? Yeah, I would say very much so, actually. Huh. Uh, and um, yeah, even, even growing up, actually, we had very uh, common rituals around being together as a family. Dinner was at 6 p.m. sharp every night, mm. uh, and I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't mm. miss it for sports. I wouldn't miss it for, for homework. I wouldn't miss it for fun. We had kind of this rule that you had to be home at 6. We, we actually could... I had a lot of autonomy uh, and kind of did what we wanted, but uh, dinner, 6 p.m. every night we, we mm. were there. What, were you, what was that like? Why was that so meaningful to you? It is meaningful. I actually still do it now. Me and my partner, we we have dinner at 6. Dinner at 6? Yeah, we, we do it. It's it's a time to come together, to to reflect, to digest the day, and yeah. put some bit of a structure on the day, I think, mm. a chance to connect. Hmm. That's neat. Um. So, so when you were, um, when you were in high school, uh, what, what were you like then? Did you have a, did you have some really, really close buddies in high school? I did actually, I will tell you, I was not academically very motivated in high school yet in the early years, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, Yes. So I, I sort of, you know, had a really good group of, of friends and uh, I was sort of finding myself, I would say. Mm. And one of the the things that I poured my initial energy into actually was rowing. Mm. Uh, I, I actually invested a lot in being a rower, which was very challenging for me, actually, because I'm, I'm pretty short and it's very hard to be a good rower uh, mm. when, you, when you're my height. So I had to really study uh, how to be a good rower. Mm. Uh, different aspects of the technique and everything. Uh, but that was really a place there I found a lot of, of purpose and an ability to channel my energies. Mm. And then in the middle of high school, I started to get more academically precocious. Uh, and then uh, that's when I, I sort of started to think about what I was interested in academically. And actually, interestingly, I wasn't interested in economics, even though I, I do economics now. I was actually into biology. And I actually thought mm. I wanted to be a, a doctor actually. Mm. Uh, And then I had an event my kind of junior, senior year that really shaped what would end up happening after, where I was actually preparing, I was trying to get into university, and I wanted to be competitive as a rower. So I was really training, training, 
And uh, I actually will never forget one summer I was sort of training and I heard a, a pop in my arm actually while I was training. Oh, and it turned out that was a blood clot, actually, a very serious blood clot, very unusual in, in someone young, right? And very unusual in the upper arm. Usually it's, it's in the legs. Huh. Uh, so it actually took a couple of weeks to figure out what was going on, actually. Uh, and then I actually ended up being hospitalized for a couple of weeks, and it was actually quite um, serious. Uh, and after that, actually, I couldn't row anymore. Uh, and mm. so that was kind of the end of my my time as a rower, which was a big blow because I wanted to do more rowing. But interestingly, uh, I started coaching, actually. Mm. And I was actually a much better coach than I was a rower mm. uh, because, you know, as hard as I tried as a rower, uh, I was just, you know, I, you know, didn't have some of the, the kind of natural strengths for that. But because I had studied it so hard, I kind of knew the technique very well. And I had thought right. about it a lot. So when I was a yeah. coach, I actually was quite good. And even though I never meddled as a rower, as a coach, actually, my teams meddled every time, which was very fulfilling. So it's sort of interesting how that changed. Mm. And then I will say, actually, that the blood clot experience changed my interest away from biology, actually, because I actually had a very trying time in the hospital that made me not want to become a doctor. Uh, mm. Of course, there were great doctors and I was very lucky. It was at MGH, which is a wonderful uh, hospital. But I had a series of events happen that really made me question the kind of individual doctoring in favor of thinking really about the health system, actually, which got me interested in economics. Yeah. Uh, so for example, uh, what I turned out what I actually needed was a removal of a rib, which we got to in the fourth surgery. But oh, it took gosh, four surgeries no, to so get sorry. there. Wow. Yeah, no, it was it was intense actually. It was intense, and along the way, there were a bunch of. Was that an injury caused by the rowing, or was that something that they don't know, or what? So it was a mix of an underlying condition and rowing. I had some. I have something called Paget Schroeder syndrome, which means mm. my clavicle and first rib are very close, so they chafe my subclavian vein, so the, mm. the vein up in the upper body here. Uh, and then the motion of rowing would actually exacerbate it every single day. And sort of mm. there was this big plaque buildup over time that eventually oh. became a very serious blood clot. Oh. So, so it was the combination, actually. Got it. Got it. So the doctors saw that pretty quickly, that that's, they, they saw that and they were like, this is, this is not a, a lifestyle that you're going to be able to maintain. I would say it took some time, actually, to figure out what was going on because it was so unusual. Yeah. Uh, and so first, before they removed my rib, they actually just tried to remove the cloth oh. and it came back. And oh. then they tried another procedure. It came back. It kept coming back, actually. Wow. Uh, and in the process, I saw a lot of these inefficiencies uh, in addition to being, you know, very uncomfortable and wanting to get out of the hospital. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, they would give me these very expensive blood thinners that had marginal evidence. But because, you know, I had reasonable care, you know, they, they decided that was worth it. They delayed the the real procedure that I needed, actually, the, the rib removal, because they wanted to tinker with some other procedures. Mm. So the incentives weren't really aligned to kind of being efficiently over and done with it, actually. Mm. Uh, and rather, it was sort of to try, you know, it was all covered, right? And so it was to kind of try some of these other things and keep doing a few procedures. Mm. Uh, and so anyway, eventually we got there after a few weeks, but I actually will never forget. I was in the hospital room during the head of the Charles, which is the big rowing race. And I was watching the boats go by and obviously I wasn't on them. And it was a very, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, here, I've been here for three weeks. I'm never going to row again. Like, what am I going to make of this actually? And then, you mm. know, I ended up coaching and, 
and finding a passion for economics, which you know I always was drawn to because my father's an economist. Uh, but at first, I tried to go the biology route. This brought me back to economics. So then, mm. since then, the rest is history. I stayed in that route. So the economics, because you mentioned all the incentives, you were watching the doctors making choices that, in your mind, were like zero marginal cost choices to them, but were like not necessarily necessary or productive. Is that is that you were thinking those things while exactly. you were in the patient? Exactly. Yeah. And I was just wondering, you know, what, what is it going to take to get out of here? Essentially? Right. 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 <laughs> and it was clear it wasn't a really good doctor, which I had actually. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was so it wasn't a problem on. of not having a good doc. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. So it's like you could, you had the ability to tell he's a good doctor. You're at, you're at a very, 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 very good hospital. So you're, you're, is it, is it that you're thinking to yourself, the problem's not, he's not a good doctor. The problem exactly. is incentives or something. Or exactly. some, something about the healthcare. Exactly. And oh, many levels of it. There was incentives to do certain procedures. Mm. There was also just his time. Like he would come in for a few minutes, right? Yeah. The doctors are hot shots. And right. you know, I remember we had this small window to make a call about what procedure to do. Mm. And luckily, you know, we as a family would read some of the evidence so that we could be very informed in those few minutes and try to make a joint decision. Mm. And I was realizing, you know, just the, even the opportunity to actually use the evidence was very precious. And we were very mm. lucky that we were such informed patients. So it just got me thinking more about the system as a whole rather than one wonderful doctor. Yeah. There's something so uh, uh, biblical about losing the rib. <laughs> you know, the stories of, uh, of, uh, the, of, of, of Genesis of losing the rib. It seems like that would be a really really heavy uh surgery just kind of like weighing on you as you know of like losing a part of your body was that was that was that was that scary was it were you nervous about that you know there is something something to that i will say i didn't think about it that way at the time i just wanted to get out of the hospital yeah and i had no idea how transformative it would be i think it's always hard to know what will really be transformative in your life in the moment uh -huh. you know it's only you know many, many years later that I said, wow, that really shaped many events actually that ended up sticking. But at uh, the time I wasn't sure actually at the wait, time. So, in, yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the actual losing of the rib itself was transformative. It was because that's what made me become a coach and then becoming a coach led to many other things I can, uh, I, see. I, can I can share. And then it also did actually influence my thinking and yeah. When I went to college, I actually did want to do economics, actually, mm. rather than be a doctor. So professionally, it had a lot of influence on me, but also personally, it really shaped my thinking and it made me appreciate life and mm. pre preciousness of life. And mm. there were some scary moments in the hospital. I actually was in the ICU at one point. My oxygen levels were very low because I, because of some issues I had. And so uh, it just made me want to make the most of every second and actually yeah. kind of a general philosophy I have in life is wanting to make the most difference I can now rather than uh, say kind of climbing a, a ladder so that I can make a difference later. So it gave me right. a sense of urgency around trying to do the most good that I could and make the most of, of the precious moments that we have. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I definitely detected that. And that's part of the things I wanted to, to talk to you about. So, so you go to, so you come back, so you're probably what, like a junior in high school? Yeah, I think it was junior year, actually, because I was trying to be competitive for colleges. So I was just applying. So I think it's I around see. them. Yeah. So then you, you, where was it, was it, 
always something that you thought yourself, like, I wouldn't mind going to, I mean, you know, going to one of the best universities in the whole world is, is I'm sure for many people, you know, I mean, it is for many people, uh, an aspiration, but was it something that was an aspiration for you as a, as around that time that you wanted to go to MIT? You know, interestingly, I, it was, you know, of course, it's a great privilege and, and it was really quite humbling to, you know, have the opportunity to go to MIT, though I will say I actually originally only applied because it would have been cheaper. Uh, because, uh, my dad's a professor there, so we got a big discount. Um, and so actually the other universities I applied for, you know, were great universities, uh, but they weren't actually at MIT. They were Michigan uh, Wesley and a few other universities. So it, I wasn't sort of on a, um, I wouldn't say, uh, I, yeah, I had kind of a broad view towards what I wanted to do and, and different types of universities I wanted to go to. My sister had gone to Michigan. She really liked it. Mm. Uh, and so actually the original reason I applied to MIT is of course, it's a great university, but also it was going to be a bit cheaper. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but of course, once I got to MIT, I was, I was very, grateful and thankful. And it was really quite a transformative college experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't really know a lot about the the experience of a college student at MIT that majors in economics, because, you know, to, to an economist, MIT's economics department is the one of the greatest departments in the history of the planet. But, you know, like, um, but it's like, I just can imagine if you're a, co if you're a college student, the selection is probably not on someone that is aspirationally wanting to go into economics. Is that true? Yeah, no, absolutely, actually. So I, I didn't apply knowing I wanted to go into economics. I applied originally uh, kind of with that as a loose thought, but not a firm thought. As I mm -hmm. mentioned, I was interested in biology at first, which was actually a bigger draw. Mm. Uh, and you're right, actually, the number of majors is very small. It's like in the you know dozens per year, actually. I think now it's gone up, actually. And mm. over half of the majors are doing uh, electrical engineering and computer science. Right, um, right. So that's, even though it is the best, one of the best departments, right, it is not uh, at the undergrad level um, kind of uh, as clear a draw, though it should be, it should yeah. be. And one of the incredible benefits of going was, uh, you know, and you don't even appreciate this as an undergrad, I'm sure, uh, you know, professors wished undergrads may, maybe appreciated this more is you get access to the, the best of the best at, right. at age 19, right? And so I was working for John Gruber and Esther Duflo, and I learned so much at such an early age. And that's one of the big advantages of going to, to a university like that. Yeah, the, the, the stories of what we heard is, the, is that it's, it's, in the, um, it's in the DNA at MIT Econ to just have, you know, more of a student oriented kind of approach a little bit compared to, you know, for it, for its level. I don't know if that I've, I've heard that, you know, even heard that that was something that Samuelson sort of had kind of brought to it, but I don't know if that's exactly true, but I've heard that before. Yeah, I definitely felt that, uh, you know, when I worked with John was my first, uh, you know, I did research for John Gruber. He gave me a lot of opportunity and, mm. and uh, that was that was tremendous. I was working on some of his research related to the Affordable Care Act at the time. Right. Uh, and that was really eye opening and, and thought provoking. Uh, when I worked for Esther, she gave me a lot of responsibility. Esther Duflo, I remember once she was actually had to go for a meeting at the White House and she asked me to take over her presentation. Uh, she was giving a presentation at MIT. And so, you know, there was really this this trust and belief, I think. In, wow. 
in the the researchers, the students, and a real kind of opportunity to to step up to the plate. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the it's interesting that it's kind of interesting in a way, like you you saying that the thing that you were thinking about when you when you were in the hospital was the it was economics, and you were noting like the behavioral theory, but like so often, um, you know, people you, but then the, the things that you're going to tell me is, is so much of what you've also done is focused on the, the evidence part of economics. I was curious, like, you know, was, was your time at MIT, did, did it move you towards like different, different parts of the spectrum or around what economics as a science was like evidence and theory and all these things, or what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think two things. So one, I was there when J-PAL was really taking off. It was had mm. sort of been been around, but it was kind of starting to become clear that it was, a, you know, it was a, a center of gravity. Mm. Uh, and so that was very exciting. So I wanted to be a part of that. And that that really moved me to a very empirical applied bent on things. Mm-hmm. And I was just really uh, enamored with the approach, actually, the sort of practical, technical skills and really making a difference in the world. So that mm-hmm. that really drew me in. Uh, the other thing is actually at MIT, I actually started a, an organization called Amphibious Achievement, which was a, a kind of dual rowing academic enrichment program for, for high school students in Boston. So I kind of would, would do this on the weekends, actually. And I mm-hmm. started this uh, with, with a group of folks. Uh, and uh, we would actually try to give folks access to MIT had these incredible rowing facilities, uh, Mm. both kind of indoor rowing tanks as well as outdoor boats, but then also this cohort of incredible potential tutors. Mm -hmm. And that actually, that became a defining part of what I did at MIT. And actually we would, we were so oversubscribed, we ran a lottery to accept students actually. Yeah. And so I actually was running a randomized trial, you know, as well as, as starting an organization. Uh, and that actually was, I got equal, if not more fulfillment from, from that work, uh, actually, in addition to the coursework that I was doing and, and the engagement I was having with the J-PALs of the world. You kept up with the, the, the people that didn't win the lottery? You, 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 you kept up with, what were the outcomes? I'm just curious now, I'm just intrigued. What, what was the outcomes that you were kind of curious about? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so we did uh, initially. Um, we actually did it to be fair, and then we had this yeah. vague notion that it could be an evaluation. But because we were so oversubscribed, we just did it to give equal equal opportunity. Right. Uh, but yes, we tracked GPAs uh, and uh, and a few other indicators, test scores, and things like that. Uh, and actually, kind of a group of us started to write it up, and then. Uh, someone who who joined later, John Teebs, actually wrote it up for his thesis, and we're actually going to try to get this paper out uh, someday. You know, as everyone knows, what we're all trying to get papers out. Someday, yeah, exactly, exactly. Someday we'll we'll write this up. Well, what did you find? What what was the finding? It was pretty effective, actually. Really? Um, yeah. So it, it did actually close a, a good chunk of the achievement gap, huh. uh, which is pretty interesting. And I think a few of the reasons why. One is we know tutoring is one of the most effective things you can do. So I think the opportunity to get, you know, essentially one-on-two time with MIT tutors is pretty mm. valuable uh, every week in terms of tutoring. Mm. But I think that's consistent with the evidence on tutoring. I think the other thing that might be happening that's that's so effective about it is it's selecting in the people who actually need it because the sports actually draw people in who wouldn't otherwise be drawn into 
a kind of academic enrichment program. Oh. And so you get people who sort of come but would never sign up for an MIT tutoring program. Right. And <laughs> they also benefit from an MIT tutoring program. Oh, 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 interesting. So it's like when your parents give you uh uh like like sneak some vegetables on your on the in the in the hamburger. To- yeah, it could be it could be something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, is it is it is a is it a weird feeling? Do you think um, being someone that that's like creating a program? You think it's a weird feeling that uh, you are simultaneously doing all this creative policy level kind of work and constantly evaluating it? Is that is that because because I I could imagine like you know sometimes you talk to people in tech. And of course they do these AB tests all the time, but then, then, then you'll find out there's like big chunks, even of tech where they're like, where it's like not just tinkering with a website, but it's like, um, you know, a program, like, like, it'll be like a product. And they're like, we're not going to, we're not going to do any kind of RCT on that because, you know, the stakeholders involved, you know, they have, they just almost the incentives really maybe they don't, I don't, it's, I just wonder, like in my mind, I always tell myself, I, I bet there is someone who is like, I don't want to know because I, uh, I, one, I believe so strongly in it and I spent, and I spent so much time on it. And what if it doesn't work? And I was just kind of yeah. wondering, it seems like one of the things that's really weird about you is, is how you like are not, there's this kind of, I don't know, like, that does not appear to be something that is going on with you and your work. You're sort of like, you're, you're, you're trying to help. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but like, I mean, it just seems like this is an emotional, this seems like this is, this is, there's like a lot of stuff involved in the way you approach stuff that I just would think for, it requires almost like life coaching kind of things to navigate. Am I, am I, am I just making stuff up? It's great points, actually, and maybe I can describe a bit of, of what I do now with Youth Impact, because I think it's it's very relevant, but a quick one on that, and then I can give some concrete examples from the work with, with Youth Impact. Uh, I think that is right. I think the reason I approach it in a way that I think is compatible, uh, and I think it is compatible, but I agree in many cases it might not be, for me, with my social impact work, my goal is to make an impact which maybe mm-hmm. sounds straightforward, but <laughs> I think sometimes somehow that goal gets goes goes awry. Sometimes I think organizations start to exist to exist, right? Rather than right. to make, make an impact. Right, exist and, to exist, right, right. And I think that, you know, happens for, you know, understandable reasons, right? You need to find funding, funders want only a good story, right? So I, I can see how that happens. For me, I've held a very firm belief that if, the work that I'm doing is not making an impact. I don't want to be doing it and I don't want to be involved actually. Hmm. And so that conviction has meant that it is compatible because if Hmm. it doesn't work, I don't want to do it anymore. And if it can work better, I want to do what's going to work better. And so that's my leadership style when Hmm. when running NGOs and organizations. Now I will say that's taken bringing on board a very particular kind of funder actually, mm. which is not easy, who's along for, for that ride and of the same spirit, which is yeah. rare. But I have we're very lucky. We have funders who give us unrestricted funding, actually. Many uh-huh. of them give us unrestricted funding. So it's actually not tied to an outcome. Right. 
it's multi-year uh, and it's not tied to whether it works or not, actually. Right. And so we've had funders give us more money when something doesn't work to fix it, actually. Mm. And so I think if you have that conviction as a leader and as an organization, and you have the right kind of funders, then this is possible. If you have the wrong kind of funders, or not wrong, a different type of funder, it's, it's mm. difficult. And if your goal is to just become a big organization, but not necessarily an effective organization, then I think it's, it's less compatible. So as long as impact really is your primary focus, and I think for social impact orgs, it should be, and yeah. we need to align incentive, incentives so that it is, then I think you have more alignment between the evidence and the running of, of those efforts. You know, it kind of sounds almost like that physician in the hospital, you know, like you, you, you were the, the, that the physician uh, was extremely competent, obviously uh, evidenced by where his job was and his Vita, but there were still incentives that, that mattered. And it sounds like what you're saying is even in doing, you know, this kind of work and I want to now, I feel like I've sort of danced around it and I want to hear more about it, but like doing this kind of work uh, you could inadvertently be fully committed to all this uh, kind of evidence-based scale, scalable uh, policy and, and just inadvertently introduce incentives that make you afraid of the truth or not wanting to, you know, just exist to exist. Is that, yeah. is that, that's, that's. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. I think it's, it, and so I think there's actually, there's a group of funders who are trying to move away from that. Mm. And actually there are also similar funders to funders who've supported J-PAL, IPA, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and so for example, you've got the Douglas B. Marshall Foundation, you've got the Mulago Foundation uh, and a bunch of others who've really wanted to invest in this journey of ups and downs actually. Mm. Uh, but they're rare, they're not the norm actually. So we need more, more funders like that. And then we'll see more incentives align around this, I think. Okay, so, so uh, tell me, you, so you're, you're at MIT, you, you become, uh, uh, I mean, I, I can imagine um, at MIT having all these experiences working for Professor DeFlo and, and Professor Gruber and um, uh, that you would have just decided to become a, uh, an economist uh, that, you know, spends their career writing papers. But you, you have a different, at some point, it seems like you you clearly kind of are doing something like that, but but it seems like you have a vision at some point about something more specific that you're wanting. When did when did that happen, and what was that? Yeah, so I I would say I had I've always had an entrepreneurial bent and spirit, but I also do love research and writing papers. I so both both coexist, uh, and you know they don't always, but for me they coexist. Yeah. Um, and so I actually didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wasn't quite ready for a PhD after finishing, graduating. So I, mm. I worked for JPL. I worked with Esther Duflo for, for a bit longer. And then I decided I wanted to do something um, that, that was a bit different. And so I applied for a Fulbright, actually, to go and follow up a project that I had done with the World Bank. Mm. Uh, and so I'd worked at the World Bank, and there was some data that I didn't quite understand, and it was in partnership with the government of Botswana. And I felt like in order to get a better handle on that, I felt like it was unresolved. I needed to, to go to the University of Botswana, work with some expert professors there and get a sense of, of the context and the setting. And mm -hmm. so I applied for a Fulbright to, to go to Botswana actually for nine months to follow up that project actually. Mm -hmm. 
And so it was meant to be a nine month thing. And I didn't quite know what was going to happen after or, or, you know, I didn't actually have this clear vision. Uh, but I knew I, I didn't want to just yet just uh, kind of write, continue to write papers. I wanted to also write papers. Right, right. And so I, I moved to Botswana. Uh, and real quick, I was no, doing, did, is, yeah. is that is that, you know, wanting to write papers, but not just write papers? Did, did you have a role model that you sort of like thought in your mind? Well, I know that it's possible to do this because, you know, blah, 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 does this kind of thing. Is there was there people that you saw? that you sort of had in mind of like a, a, a kind of person you were wanting to be? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, it's coming up more and more. I think there's a few examples of folks like this. I saw Esther doing part of, you know, in a way being a very applied person. I saw John Gruber as being an applied person uh, who had sort of been in policy as well as in research. I mm. also saw folks like Rukmini Banerjee, who's the head of Pratham, a really big education NGO, uh, in India, that's done a lot of cutting-edge education reform, but also she has a PhD and has written papers. So I saw a few people like this. Uh, I think we see, like, Paul Niehaus at Give Directly, sort of, though, though that wasn't right. actually as prominent at the time, but it was kind of coming up. Uh, and so there was a few, but not as many as we should. I think we need more, actually. You know, if I use the analogy of of maybe a doctor or even kind of wet science, you do see more researchers dabble in real world practice, actually. You see folks apply for patents when they make a discovery and try to right. spin off a company. Right. Uh, you see doctors do surgery and then write it up in a journal. Uh, and so I think we want more of that in social science. I would mm -hmm. actually love to see uh, social scientists really engage in the practice, actually, whether that's policy, but also running organizations and spinning off research ideas into, into existing programs. So I would say I didn't have a very crystal clear uh, set of role models, but I had uh, kind of contours of what it could look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, being at MIT, you know, just put aside economics, it seems like at MIT, you do see a lot of that because uh, you just see so much entrepreneurial activity uh, in the tech-oriented fields you know so yeah, I, would, I, I would just imagine you saw a lot of like you know encouraging people to use science to to be to have impact 100 percent. i think that that's right and you know there's so many engineers this is exactly what they're doing even the motto of mit is mens manas, which is mind in hand so it's take mm. what you know and then make it happen right get your hands dirty mm. so, so it really is built into the the fiber of the institution so that really spoke to me mm. So you go, you have this, you have this experience. So, so you go, you spend nine months in Botswana. What happens? How are you different as a result of that? What's the, what's the output from that experience? Yes. Yeah, so I, I thought it was going to be a nine months. I was going to do a good research project, learn a little bit about the world, be more contextually grounded, but things um, took a life of their own. Uh, I, I was at the university. I had an office there. I was working with two professors, Professor Pansiri and Professor Tsayang. Uh, and, you know, I was running my regressions. I was kind of going to meetings with government, uh, you know, going to schools. And I ended up uh, becoming friends with a few folks uh, at the university. Uh, one was another Fulbright scholar, Brenda Duverse, and then two, um, two folks from Botswana, Moitepi Machang and Unami Moatsui. And Moitepi, who, who is kind of became the most prominent leader of, of Youth Impact, which I'll describe in a second, you know, we really bonded and connected. And, you know, we would see things around and I would kind of always say, oh, have you heard of this study? 
Sports, for example, I kind of became that person that would say, oh, have you heard of this study? You know, this is might be relevant. So for example, uh, we were at the university and the university is sort of this square shape. And there's this great scheme at the university actually where not only is it fully funded, but actually kids get a stipend to go. University students get a stipend to go. But then at the end of the month, there's sort of this, this cycle where then people are cash strapped. So it sort of generates this very clear uh, cycle of income flows. And so you would see older guys actually come to the perimeter of the university and wait in the cars around it at the end of the month for the young ladies to go and kind of hop in their car and, and you know, be with them. And it was sort of this implicit exchange of, of kind of being with the sugar daddies, right? It was what these guys were called uh, in exchange for, for a relationship. And so as we were seeing this and, you know, Tepi, my Tepi would comment on it. She would say, oh, the sugar daddies are back. This is a problem. I had been very familiar with Pascaline Dupas paper about sugar daddies. And so okay. for those who don't know, Pascaline Dupas has this famous paper from a different setting. It's in Kenya, but it's showing that a one hour anti-sugar daddy class was very effective, actually. And it sort of reveals the risks of these older guys, which young kids don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I can get more into the theory of change behind it. But in short, it's very effective, reduces risky sex, reduces teen pregnancy by 28%. Uh, also a proxy for HIV. Uh, and so very effective. So I said, have you heard of this study? I said this to my Tepi. She said, no. And then we're Googling it and we see it actually has not really been scaled up, even though it's very effective, very mm. effective. It's cited by the UN, it's cited by the World Health Organization. And I remember my Tepi said to me, well, why do you do this research if when things work, it still doesn't get scaled up? Get off your bum and let's, let's try to implement this thing. Mm. Uh, and actually that was the genesis of... Uh, of Youth Impact, which is this NGO that we created to actually scale up RCT-backed findings. And More generally, RCT-backed findings or this specific Sugar Daddy program or both? So we started with this specific program uh, and then along, but our vision was actually always a bit broader. And then along the way, we expanded actually. So now we have mm. multiple programs uh, and I should be, so the Sugar Daddy program itself actually happens in primary school, not at university. It's just that the university setting sort of inspired this. Yeah. Uh, and then we went out to actually start to deliver it. And we saw that when we started to deliver it, the same things that the paper said would work, we saw were, were working actually. Really? That, that when you revealed that the older guys were much riskier, kids would physically gasp. They were so shocked, actually. They kind of huh. thought it was the opposite. They thought the guys were safer, mature wise and that kind of young guys had raging hormones and if you even for example look at the hiv risk about five percent of young boys in botswana have hiv yeah 45 percent of 40 year old men have hiv so almost half so it's actually totally flipped and it's it's quite a shock and so that really changes the decision making for for young people mm. uh, and was so we were seeing as we were implementing it that some of the things that the paper said were true, were really true in our context. And that's when we got excited about it. And I will say we actually retested it. So uh, even from the early days as an organization, we were sort of a pseudo IPA JPAL in that we both wanted to scale, but we also wanted to make sure that things worked. And so we felt like even though the study was effective in Kenya 10 years before, we should test it again. So we did a large scale RCT with 42,000 students mm. uh, to retest it in Botswana. And that's where we started to develop this dual uh, uh, competencies of doing the research and also doing the scaling. Mm, mm, mm. Um, uh, 
Why is sugar daddy a equilibrium in these area in this area? Why why is it that? Because uh, I usually think of like you know naturally occurring equilibrium is in my mind. I, I have this like neoclassical kind of like tendency. You know, it's it's all driven by technology and production functions and 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 cost functions and and that's the cause of this and it it's so uh, in population and sex ratios and so so why is it that the sugar daddy persists in equilibrium such that there's all this risk with this kind of dissociative matching and why why then secondly if it is so risky why isn't the information why isn't it known that why why is this misinformation in equilibrium very interesting. I know you've done a lot of work on related issues, actually, so I'd love to, to have a discussion about, about this in more depth. Uh, one thing I will say is, you know, that certainly there, there could be a really rich model for thinking about this, but there are clearly lots of frictions, is what I would say. Mm. And for example, whether someone has HIV is not known. It's not right. visible. It's not disclosed. And there's many incentives to not reveal it, actually. So mm. that's just one friction. There's you many. have this one asymmetric information problem that's just a fact about HIV because it's asymptomatic for a long time, right? Exactly. And if anything, actually, it's become even that friction in a way is bigger because now because of great treatment, it's yeah. you know, it, it's very hard to tell, actually, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a great thing. It's great that there's treatment, mm. but actually all the more reason this this uh, asymmetry might persist, actually. Yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. Um, uh, scale. I, I want to talk about sugar dyes, but I, it's just I'm kind of down distracted. So this thing, it's funny, you know, people will, I think economists, it, it, I think as the credibility revolution kind of moved, you know, especially as the RCTs moved, you know, I think like, it, I wonder, I'm just going to throw this out there. Economists became very interested in causal inference, obviously. And so, and were, uh, you know, hyper, hyper attentive to identifying causal effects experimentally and non-experimentally. But, you know, when you don't have a culture of policy entrepreneurship, you know, then you don't ever think about scale, even though the whole science of economics is like society, you know, it's like it's production functions that take inputs and transform them into outputs, which have, you know, certain production functions do certain things at, at some scales and others do different things at those scales. And so I just was kind of wondering, you know, when when was it that scale became something that you thought so much about? And I'm just kind of curious what you think about it now, just kind of at a meta level, this connection between the work that many of the academics do and, you know, the need to scale it up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is the next wave and vanguard of, of research and work, actually. So it's, you know, something I and we are thinking a lot about, actually. And, and just to put in context, so today, actually, Youth Impact is the largest or one of the largest NGOs in Botswana, actually. Mm. Uh, we have multiple programs. So we have the original Sugar Daddy work that we're continuing to refine and improve. We also are scaling up an education program called Teaching at the Right Level, which has six RCTs showing it works. And really the question is now to scale it actually. Yeah. And, and we have a program actually that we innovated during COVID, which provided the world's first evidence on distance education mm. uh, in Botswana. 
And we've now actually replicated and tested and are scaling in five additional countries, actually. So this question of scale is something we're thinking a lot about. Uh, and I have a few a few thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. And then also one, one final thing I should say is we work very closely, not just as an NGO, but also with the government. So our co-founder, Moitepi, now actually chairs the government's National Youth Council, which is a permanent secretary level post. So it'd be like a secretary of you know, youth, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're working very closely with the government. So these questions of scale are really the ones that we're thinking about every day, actually, because our starting point is an RCT. And then we say, how do we scale it? Actually? Right. Right. And one of the things I'm most excited that we're doing now, which I think actually is really key for successful scale up, is bringing some of the incredible A-B testing work in tech to the social sector. Mm-hmm. So we're actually running A-B tests on all of our programs every month. Mm. And I think that process has really been game changing mm. when we're thinking about scale questions because then we're replicating, actually. We're taking the same thing and we're testing it a few times. So then we know, was it a one-off or can this stick? So that's one thing that helps us. Wait, wait, no. So I, just so that I can follow, yeah, I, I was not expecting you to say that because you already have such a strong background in the experimental design. So what, what, so, so for my sake, uh, what is it that's the value added of this culture of A-B testing in tech that's not at like the, that, that, that one wouldn't have just kind of having a strong background in causal inference? What, what are you, what is it you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. So, so maybe I can share a bit more motivation on that. So for example, with this sugar daddy work, you know, it worked in Kenya, then we did it again in Botswana. Mm. And what we found in Botswana is that it could work, but that some dimensions were really key. So for example, the messenger really mattered. When it was done by peer educators, it was very effective. When it was done by government teachers, it wasn't so effective. In fact, we even saw some kind of teenage rebellion. Mm. And so, you know, from there's sort of some interesting, you know, that's an interesting paper and it's going to come out soon. And there's some interesting work there. From an organizational point of view, we said, okay, this has been a 15 year journey of two RCTs and we have so much more to learn. Can we do this faster? And can we do it uh, continuously, actually? So it's not an RCT every five to six years, actually, because we don't want to wait another 15 years to learn you know, what we need to learn, actually. So that's actually when we said, let's look at what tech is doing and see if we can marry the traditional RCT with what tech is doing. There's obviously a lot of similarities and try to bring this kind of rapid, rigorous learning approach into our organization. Oh, that's the part. In tech, it's more of like the, RCT is a way of life kind of living. Exactly. I mean, not that it's not at JPL, obviously it is too, but yeah. you're talking about when you're work, when you're when you're in a world where you're making something as opposed to just evaluating, but you're literally like got to make it and you've got to tweak it and, and make it effective and make it, I guess, even make things change in response to changing market conditions. It's like it, it, it it's a different you've you've got to get some different skills or something. Yeah, I think I think one is the pace, the speed. I think the speed is really essential. So we wanted mm. to test faster. Now, interestingly, there's nothing slow about randomization, right? You can randomize in a split second. So the benefits of causal inference are there very quickly. Actually. Right, right. And so, you know, there's many, there's, so we were kind of drawing some of the best things of a traditional RCT with, you know, there's some things they be tested do well, some things they don't and RCTs do well. So we tried to match make these essentially. Mm. So the pace is one thing. I think the other is, 
making this a part of day-to-day -day operations, actually. So it's mm -hmm. not uh, kind of a once-off. It's sort of built into day-to-day -day decision making. Yeah. Uh, and so I think this then helps you really test the scale questions. Um, there are some things, for example, that are really essential for scale, but might be hard to publish in the AR or, or the QJE, but are really critical for scale. There's some mm. things that are really critical for AR and QJE, but maybe, you know, you know, aren't as helpful or are as helpful for scale. So it just helps you orient that. So for example, one question we tested the other day with the A-B testing, which was really critical for a scale-up uh, thought process, mm -hmm. was... Uh, whether you know the dosage of one of our interventions should be 20 minutes once a week or 40 minutes every other week mm. and it's actually the same dosage just distributed differently yeah now maybe it's possible to pitch that question to a top journal i'm not sure maybe maybe listeners can can help me brainstorm on that <laughs> right but it's very critical for scale actually yeah, yeah. very critical because how you're dosing and how you're allocating your resources in that environment uh, it's actually game changing for cost and for time and mm. for how you run an operation. So it, it's kind of moved us in that direction of thinking about scale questions in terms of government delivery, in right. terms of some kind of operational questions and so right. forth. Right, 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 right. Wow. Wow. Uh, um, this is just so exciting what you're working on. I, I wonder, you know, I saw you give a speech and in the speech, you, you made this comment and, and I know it was like a public speech and, and you, you, you have such a great presence and style of presenting. And so I, I know that, but I was kind of wanting to press a little bit more. You said, you know, when you were in graduate school, or you had, you know, run a lot of regressions, loved numbers and math and finding meaning in them you know, how they like work together to create, you know, meaning, but that, but I, I, I wasn't, I, it was something I heard later. I was wondering, did he say what I thought he said, which was that you, you had said this thing about meaning with the numbers and the regressions, but suggested it, it, you needed something more for it to be meaningful to you. And I was curious about that phrase, meaning, can, can you tell me more about what it is that you've sort of been looking for that that youth impact you know uh is meaningful in a way for you personally that you know where you had gone a different direction it would be missing yeah i think so i mean i think in so much of the work that we do often you need to take a big leap of faith right i did this great study you know will it change anyone's mind will it you know, result in some kind of real world action. And I think mm -hmm. at some level, we always need to take that leap of faith, actually. There's sort of, you can't know everything and you can't quite know where the buck stops. But one thing I love about the, the work with Youth Impact is actually you don't need to take quite as big a leap of faith, actually, because you can go into the school and see if teaching at the right level or anti-sugar daddy programming or our COVID response is happening. Right. And then you can check the data and see if it's working. And right. so actually, I, you know, one of the things that I personally enjoy about it is that there is a kind of a sense of attribution in the sort of real world sense of you can kind of know if what you're doing is translating into something that is affecting real lives at the end of the day. Yeah. And so for me personally, I actually carry that kind of notion of attribution through 
I want to know if a program worked and then I want to know if it exists in the real world and what I'm doing is is helping that actually. Mm-hmm. Now, I should be clear, I think it's actually also important to 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 take that leap of faith because there's many things that we do and we'll never know actually <laughs> at the end of the day something in a classroom changed or something in a clinic changed mm-hmm. and that's important actually. Uh, but one of the things that I do love about straddling the world of of kind of research policy and practice as you can kind of see at all levels and kind of traverse the spectrum. And one thing I love about practice and data is you can see it with your own two eyes, but then you can check it in the data to make sure it's not just intuition or it wasn't sort right. of an anecdote or a once-off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think that combo actually of the data and the practice come together very powerfully to generate meaning. Mm, mm. So, so what have you loved about, so, so what do you love about your day job now that, you know, run it, be an executive director? Are you also sort of dancing around universities too, though? I know you're, I think you're a fellow at Oxford too, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm still um, kind of yeah dancing around as you say. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I think it's all integrated, really. I sort of see my, my calling as connecting evidence with action. Mm. Uh, and so I think at Youth Impact, that's sort of where, that's where the rubber meets the road. I still find it very helpful to also be generating the research and publishing papers and part of research circles. I find mm. that that helps connect the dots to sort of the bigger picture and be inspired and keep the tools sharp so that we're doing the, the, you know, even in the kind of A-B testing, there were a lot of really interesting technical questions that we needed to figure out actually to get it right. And that's important. Mm. Um, So yeah, what what do I, what do I enjoy about it? I have to say, I I enjoy many aspects of it actually, like with any job, you know, there's things that are more and less exciting, Uh, but um, you know, I, I've, the most grounding moments for me are actually looking at the data and being in the schools. I think that's when I get that burst of inspiration, actually. There, it's sort of like, you know, if you some people like to check the stock markets, right, to see if things right. have gone up or down. For me, when I get a result of an A-B test, I, you know, that's sort of a, a moment, right, where something happened and you can see if yeah. it worked, right? It's like it's like checking the stock market, but for yeah. me, with, with that added level of meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, you, you, you are a a communal man, you know, you're a social communal man that, that seems to value people in general and care about them. And so, I mean, it it seems like all of it has kind of come together a little bit because you've got all these, all these different parts. It looks like anyway, all these different parts of your story and your personality has just sort of found this really nice, way to 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 do your entrepreneurial side and still be very people oriented i mean i guess you're like you're actually still talking to the kids in the schools and stuff right you like walk around and see them is that right yeah absolutely i i find that i I love that and actually i will say um folks like rukmini Banerjee, who's the ceo of prefem and also has kind of a you know dabbles in research i see she also goes to the schools actually so i think you know I, i share that in common i find that very fulfilling. Uh, yeah, even the other day, we actually had a big event in Botswana. And I had gone to the schools a bit before and I saw a young child actually doing, um, he was actually at the front of the class, he was teaching the class, actually. So, you know, mm. sometimes in teaching at the right level, I didn't have a chance to talk about it as much, but but it is very interactive. And it's about making sure kids are sort of not in a 
in kind of just getting grade level material thrown at them. They're sort of engaged at their level. And, and even in some cases, the kid is at the front of the classroom. And he was amazing. I thought he was better than most teachers. So I actually asked our team if he could come to this fancy stakeholder event with permanent secretaries, et cetera, and actually do a live demonstration of how to do multiplication. Mm. And I had personally seen him do it. I thought he was extraordinary and I wanted him at the event. And our team, you know, they weren't sure who wanted to do it. And then I kind of, you know, nudged it and then we did it and they loved it. You know, they were like, yeah. that was the highlight of the event. So I, I do love seeing, you know, seeing the magic happen, if you will. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I've been moving towards uh, concluding my my interviews with this one last question. Um, but you've already said a paper, so I don't know if you're going to say the same one, but if you wanted to say a different one, um, so, you know, what, what's a, what's a paper in economics, I'll stay a paper. It could be a book, but like, but maybe an article, um, it doesn't have to be your, you know, your favorite article, which is really hard to ever name. Uh, and, but what's an, what's a, what's an article or a paper in economics that you've just noticed kind of like lives in your head a lot, you know, just kind of like, you just notice that you think about it. You wouldn't have said it's your favorite, but cause maybe your favorite is like a, you know, some famous paper, but like you, you have a paper that for some reason you just notice that every, you're, you're regularly going back to it or you're thinking about it. Yeah. Well, there's many papers I, I go back to. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, uh, one that comes to mind now is, and that I do think about a lot, is this uh, From Proof of Concept to Scalable Policies paper in the JEP, the Journal of Economic Perspectives. Mm. Uh, and it is it has a, a kind of group of authors with it, and it outlines some of the principles and, and kind of conceptual framework of thinking about how to take something from kind of a, a evidence-based small scale to a large scale uh, effective program. And then also it has an application, which is, so, so I love that combination. And the application mm. is teaching at the right level, which has six RCTs and is now scaling to 60 million people worldwide. And, you know, I'm involved in that effort, uh, but it originated in, in India. Uh, and so that's a paper I love because one, it is directly informing some work that I try to engage in every day and do the best work that I can with that. But two, because it has this combo of a conceptual framework and a, a really practical set of examples that bring that to life. And maybe that's the, the theme of my, of my dancing is trying to do those yeah. together. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, it is a real, uh, it's so nice to um, get to talk more um, uh, like this with you. I guess this is the, 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 the unintended consequence of COVID is, the, is this Zoom uh, being a, something that you can do regularly. And it's really nice to see you. And, uh, and, and I'm always just so impressed with, uh, your, your entrepreneurial spirit, but just your overall style. That's just really down to earth and humble. And I, and I just, uh, I'm really, really, it's really nice to, to see you out there dancing. So, uh, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the, the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And, and it's been a treat. So looking forward to following up some of these conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.